Welcome back to another very special episode of the Experiential Travel Podcast, where we interview hosts that just do it right. Hosts that have created an experience around short-term rentals and hospitality that really offer an opportunity for their guests to disconnect in order to reconnect at a time where they are able to just create lifelong memories with their family. And this guest has done that remarkably. She has created a beautiful, beautiful cabin, five bedroom, three bathroom, over 2,600 square feet in Hocking Hills, Ohio, called the Acres Cabins. And I am so excited to have this guest on the podcast today. Welcome to the podcast, Orly Benjamin. Hi, Lex. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, we are so excited to learn everything that you have done. I want to take it from the beginning. Are you from Ohio originally? And then I want to kind of learn about why Hocking Hills, the specific market that you chose. Sure. Yes, I grew up in central Columbus. I went away for a little bit for school and to live at some other places, but I came back here. And Hocking Hills is an hour outside of Columbus. It is um, an area with a lot of really great state parks that have great hikes. I would definitely say it's underrated and not on the radar. And that was part of why we chose the location, proximity, just the great experience that you can have down there. And um, it was really fueled by the pandemic as well when everyone was spending more time outside. We just found ourselves really falling in love with the area. So let me ask you this, what a lot of the people that we talk to, the idea kind of like starts as a seed, right? They're like, I love the idea of having uh, a vacation spot for me and my family, and then uh, that turns into kind of a short-term rental. What's kind of your journey, starting with Columbus, and then were you like, I just wanna, I wanna build a cabin for me and my family, or were you from the origination, were you like, I'm doing a short-term rental, it's gonna be a beautiful cabin, and we're gonna make this a business? It was really both. I mean, we were renting a lot of cabins in Hocking Hills, and I would say around 2018, a couple of, cabins popped up in the area that were really different. They were very contemporary, unique, some made out of shipping containers, some very custom built. We were renting those and they were just so hard to get into. And it was actually during the pandemic, one of those cabins opened their books and sold out in 30 minutes. And we, I got mad, I got mad. It was like, okay, now I can't plan anything. I'm, we're just gonna do it ourselves. Cause we really love doing it. And clearly there was, some level of demand if something can run run out for a year and 30 minutes so it felt like kind of safe at the time and it was something that we were really into as a family but also recognized that there was a business opportunity there as well i love that i also love the idea of uh, fulfilling a problem that you have and solving that problem uh, for yourself and for your family and then making a business out of solving that problem so i think that's a, a great birth story of of the creation of this. So then you grew up going to Hocking Hills. You knew that you wanted to be in kind of this market. Walk me through kind of the purchasing of the lot and the land and what, what drove you to that specific site. We got really lucky, honestly, so much is time and place. Uh, a listing was put on the MLS on a Friday night. I got an alert. I called the guy that night and said, I'd like to meet you there tomorrow morning probably a little crazy as a woman going completely by myself and saying, hey, I'm gonna meet a stranger at nine in the morning in the woods, but I did it. And um, the guy who I was talking to, you know, I was his first showing and I said, okay, great, we'll 
we'll give you asking price, ready to move forward. It was that simple. So it was just timing. I did walk the property by myself, um, which was hilarious because I got lost and I'm very directionally <laughs> challenged. And so at one point I was like trying to use the compass on my phone to figure out how to get out of there because I was just wandering on 78 acres all alone. But I made it through that, that first test. And from there, we just went through the process of purchasing. That's incredible. Now, what was the timeline between COVID happening, you know you want to start or have your own cabin in Hocking Hills to that listing going live on Zillow and you making that uh, first encounter with the owner? The idea had been there for years because we had been renting these sort of more design forward cabins in the area and it was just getting harder and harder to get a booking because they were so booked out. So it was sort of a personal interest for our family, but also a recognized um, increasing market demand for that sort of offering in the space. But it was February of 2021, yeah. And uh, one of the cabins that we frequently rented sold out its entire year in 30 minutes. And I got mad um, because I really wanted to rent the cabin. I wanted something to look forward to. You know, it was sort of before the vaccine had been disseminated and everyone was still pretty isolated and we were pretty isolated during COVID. And so I was mad because I wasn't able to rent the cabin, but I was also mad because I was like, I can do this. So we got super lucky. And within two months, because I started looking immediately for land, that piece of land came up. It was April of 2021 and went, you know, on site on a Saturday morning, made an offer of asking price that day. And from there, just mobilized. Now, did you have any experience uh, in this type of arena of buying land, building homes? No. Well, I so completely it was just, figured it you out. Figured, yeah. figured it out as you go and, and learn every step of the way. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some skills that I brought to the table. I don't practice law, but I did go to law school. And um, I have enough friends that are willing to answer my silly questions. I did do some discovery in advance, things like mineral rights search searches and making sure that the deed was clean before we went through the process because it was an as-is sale. But, um, and we had renovated our house like on a small scale. So I guess I had a little bit of experience with I guess, the expectations around what construction takes, but no, really not any experience. The purchasing process wasn't so complicated to be honest with you. And everything comes down to the people you're working with. I was very, very fortunate to buy the property from someone that I'm actually friends with now. He's a mentor to me. He's an individual that owns over 6,000 acres in Ohio. He's a total entrepreneur. He's in a ton of different businesses. They're actually opening their own um, like 20 unit property probably in a year from now. So you guys should interview them. But he was a great person to work with. And I had a great architect team that had done the renovation for our house before. And finally, and most importantly, the builder. I worked with someone who was honest and competent and um, a good communicator. I mean, no one has that story about their builder. So I just got really, really lucky to work with good people. That's amazing. So you start, you're in Ohio, you want to book a cabin. It gets fully booked within 30 minutes. You get frustrated. You say, I can do this myself. I'm going to do this. Two months later, a listing goes live. You message the, li uh, the listing owner. You close on that property 
day one and you uh, to close on that property, did you get any type of financing or did you buy it in cash? How, did, how were you able to buy that piece of land? We bought the land as um, a purchase of land, which you have to put 20% down for. So we did that. And then concurrent with that process, we developed the cabin pretty quickly, myself and the architects. And then we refinanced the process into a construction loan. And we were very fortunate because we closed on the construction loan in December of 2021 and that was when all the interest rates started hiking and so we got a great rate at that time that was locked for the period of the construction loan i mean literally the interest rates doubled in that one year period which is <laughs> unprecedented and that's what i mean like timing like there was an incredible amount of luck and timing involved in this i can't take credit for it being amazing at all like sometimes things are just in your favor it definitely sounds like that you were able to find the piece of land, get the construction rate uh, loan with the rate that you want all at the same time. But I also think that luck comes to people that have preparation and uh, good energy. And I think that if you put the right mindset and manifestation out, there's, there's some, I don't know, this might get too esoteric, but I think there's some type of energy that people have that are consistently lucky and how they live their entire life. And I think there's a correlation between the energy they put into the world and the luck that they have. And so it sounds like it sounds like you're a very net positive person for our society. Uh, and that shows with how lucky you are, uh, you are able to be with your property. I don't know if I can take credit for that, but I do believe you, you get back what you put out. And I, timing was very fortunate here and honestly this was a dream come true experience for me because i had never been able to dream on something and then make it come true and so i think my energy around that was just really excited and energized and the individuals i was working with also felt a part of that so there was there were a lot of good vibes around this project it was i've heard some horror stories for people when they've built their businesses and i, I feel really lucky we we really had a good experience. You were able to get a uh, loan on the land, turn that into a construction loan, and then once the home was built, then turn that into a 30-year mortgage? Uh, 15, but 15. Uh, yes, and it was, it was a locked rate during the construction period and it automatically rolled over. That's amazing. What a smart way to go about financing your property. Now, uh, we covered land, the next real major aspect of, of this, and it seems like a, a reoccurring thing with all the hosts that I talk to, is that the structure really dictates your cash flow. It really dictates your ADR and your occupancy rate. I would love to start off with the design of your cabin is stunning. Uh, architecturally and design-wise, how did you birth this beautiful child of yours? Uh, and was it a collaborative effort? Was uh, who was calling the shots? And tell me a little bit about the the design process of your cabin. I would say it was highly collaborative, with of course the design driven by the architect team. So Bard and Beth are both professors at Ohio State of Architecture, and they have a practice or a firm, I should say, called Blostein Overly. I was pretty clear on my requirements to them, and so I think from their perspective. 
that makes the process a lot easier because there's not as much concepting. The requirements were very much focused on all rooms being equal, so you never feel like you're in the bad room in the house. Lots and lots and lots of light, uh, lots of amenities as it related to sort of indoor outdoor experiences. In fact, one of the goals was to make it feel like when you're inside, you're also outside. And that's part of why the outdoor covered fireplace has these sort of transition windows that can be opened up. You can really be in and out and that in the three-sided deck. So there were, there were, I think, clear requirements, but at the end of the day, creatively, they brought the whole thing to life. And I mean, what I gave them was like a hand-drawn floor plan, right? And they, <laughs> they're the ones that, that took all of that and said, okay, no, we're gonna make this interesting. In fact, one of the really um, unique design touches that I think they brought to the table was the use of interesting angles they there if you're in the cabin nothing is square but it's done in a way where there's an element of compression and release in different parts of the of the space depending where you're at so when you walk in for example there's a really cozy side of the fireplace that makes you feel like you're in a small space but then if you walk right around it there's a very sort of grand you know 16 foot tall window experience with another living area and so you kind of can have these micro experiences depending on where you are in the cabin and that was very much by design because if a lot of people are going to get together they also need to be able to escape each other in different parts of the house to have a little bit of alone time um and so it was just very collaborative it's amazing walk me through timeline of closing on the land to designing how long did that take i think we concepted the property in 60 days incredible and then immediately started doing construction after those 60 days construction started so we could we closed on the construction loan in december of 21 but because you never want to start construction in the winter because ideally you're not pouring concrete with you know different temperatures they did the road which is a quarter mile long by the way i mean that alone is a good amount of earthwork they did that and then actual construction started March 21st, I remember, because it was the first day of spring. And I cracked open a beer when all of the um, machinery came up and just sat there and enjoyed watching the beginning of something crazy. But uh, it wasn't until March 21st when ground was broken for the actual property. And it was 100% complete in February of 22. So pretty fast for most construction terms to do something in 11 months. Yeah, that's incredible. Now, the design aspect of it, you worked with the firm, was the aesthetic of the cabin uh, a combination of the architectural firm that you worked with and you, or uh, because it's very picturesque, and that obviously plays when you're doing short-term rentals, your entire marketing as a short-term rental is how well you can make the place look. And so I think there was such a, a beautiful balance that uh, entrepreneurs have to do when creating their property is make the exterior and interior as, as aesthetic as possible in order to increase bookings and have a high ADR. Who really drove that aesthetic taste and was it thought of before uh, in the sense of I want to design it like this with these amenities because it'll increase the ADR as in the hot tub and the fireplace, et cetera. All of the amenities were part of the requirements list that I gave to the architects. I also put together mood boards, um, pulling together 
aspects, um, everything from materials that I liked, like court and steel. I actually created a brand guide. I'm, I'm a marketer by profession. And so for me, this was like building a brand that had an architectural output, but it all started foundationally with a brand guide before we even started the actual co the, the construction of the property. So I've got like literally brand colors and all this sort of silly stuff that is for me. But, um, you know, a lot of the innovative, all of the innovative design came from them based off of requirements that were what I thought would be really commercially viable and attractive from the perspective of renters. So for example, some of the requirements that I mentioned earlier are all the rooms should be equal. I wanted, I, I kind of came up with my own target customer persona. So for example, it, to me, it felt like millennials like myself with families or multi-generational families or getaway groups of adults were really the three target um, customer demographics. And so for me, having the adult appropriate bunk room that also would make the kids be really excited was a requirement because it was a unique amenity that allowed you to pack in some more folks, but then also make something special if kids come down. And, you know, all of the, you know, the outdoor shower for me was a must. I'm obsessed with showering outside. <laughs> I just think everyone Same. should shower outside. It, 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 like when I go down there, I don't shower inside. I only shower outside, even if it's cold. And um, the covered porch was another amenity requirement because I really think it's important to be able to be outside even if the weather's not great. And so the fact that you can sit by a fireplace, but it's open from two sides, but it's closed enough that the heat can kind of stay in, you're outside inside. And, and that was really like the, the premise of the whole place is outside inside experiences. That's why there's so much sliding glass. That's why there's so much glass in the main rooms. Every, every bedroom has oversized windows because the feeling of waking up and feeling like you're in the forest is like a great way to start your day. And it was, everything was sort of designed with the intention of creating experiences focused around nature. And so those were um, some of the, I guess, ideas and requirements that I gave to the architects, but they took that, right? And let's just call those ingredients and they turned it into an amazing meal, which I could have never made that meal. When you were starting those requirement list, did you think about it as first, there, there was so much to unpack there. The three target segments of who you wanted to attract, I think is super uh, crucial for other hosts that want to start this is to have that in mind. Keep, when I was designing our properties, I had the same thing. I, I went with it of this is our exact target audience, our target market. Therefore, I am designing to what they want. And that, I think, allows you to stay on brand. It allows you to not deviate from things that uh, people might want if they're not in your target market. So, like, I, one thing is I, I wanted to make sure that uh, one of our units, all, all of our units had power. So that attracted a, a different demographic than people that wanted the more camping, rural, no power, no water, uh, glamping aspect of it. And so I think that it's really important to understand your, your, your brand guidelines and, and when designing your property, do exactly what you did. And so I think that's a great nugget for hosts when they're starting out creating their property to have that in mind. Now, you design the property, you start construction, you crack open the beer, it takes 11 months to build. Uh, 
were there any i love this question were there any things as you went as you started hosting that guests wanted that you didn't have in there that you added and then were there any things that guests wanted that you said absolutely not that goes against our bre- our brand and against the vision that i originally had that you kind of give and take with so i purposefully didn't put blinds in the bedrooms because i wanted to force people to wake up to nature but I got a lot of complaints. They, people were not cool with it. They, they felt like they were in a glass box and, you know, the deer in the forest were probably peeping on them or something. I think it was just very uncomfortable for people. And there is no, there's no, I mean, it's surrounded by, it's all woods, right? There's nothing. It's not like there's, it's a quarter mile into the woods on 78 acres of wooded land. Like there's nothing out there. But that was after like the third person asked, I said, okay, I got to do this. So I put the lines <laughs> in. Honestly, otherwise, no. I think um, there was a lot of intention that went into planning. And there are a lot of things we offer that are even probably above and beyond what most people would expect. We cook a lot. So we have a lot. I mean, we have a fully stocked kitchen. I mean, everything from a citrus press to, you know, silicone muffin tins, like things that are not like required we provide we provide upscale fresh roasted coffee i mean the coffee machine there is like top of the line mocha master technivore so i think for us it's like we love to cook and to share food with others so we really made the kitchen a place that was fully stocked and i think that's more than most people offer we also offer shampoo conditioner body wash like unlimited firewood i think most people are actually like surprised by how much is there relative to your typical Airbnb. Now I think it's built in to the price point. So it's just a more full set experience than a traditional Airbnb because it's a little bit elevated. But otherwise I don't think anybody asked for anything that we didn't already provide aside from the blinds. <laughs> I love that. We do the same things. We, uh, in one of our tiny homes, we don't have blinds and we absolutely refuse and people people leave it in their comments leave it in our reviews and will literally dock us on the review for for doing it but it's something that i am i I say it's i'll die on the hill of it and that's one of the things that i'll die on the hill of um i love i love i love i love the fact that you were able to design something with so much intentionality and i think that's the biggest thing right is design something that you love and you stay in from the property is built, takes 11 months, it's done. How long did you and your family stay and enjoy the property before you said, okay, it's time to make money off this thing and start start enjoying it? Walk me through the timeline from finished construction to let's start making money. It was just a long weekend. I mean, we, 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 we thought we were gonna be done earlier and so we actually had some bookings. Our first, first booking, I'm pretty certain was actually January 21st of uh, 23. This is our first year being open still. I have to get my years straight. <laughs> so um, we were kind of against the timeline, to be honest with you. So we, we had sort of our soft opening with family and then we had some bookings, but then there was, you know, it was winter, which is low season. Anyone who had heard of us was like within one or two degrees of knowing us personally. 
So they were all sort of, I would call them early adopters or soft openers. Um, and the reason one of the examples why we put the blinds in is someone came down with their baby and their baby was like unable to sleep. I'm like, okay, they had to put their, I think they put their baby literally in like the oversized bathroom so they could sleep. I'm like, this doesn't feel right. <laughs> so um, we took the feedback from that, but no, it just kind of went straight into it. We're, we're not at like the highest occupancy. I think part of it is part, I know this is something you were curious about. It sleeps 14 people. All of our weekends are booked. Um, we've had, particularly recently with summer and fall, a respectable number of weekdays booked. But it's not, you know, there are plenty of weeks that go by and there's four weekdays that are available. Mm. And that just is what it is. And I know that there's more that can be done to optimize that. I'm also, I set myself a certain financial goal for the year and I, and I we were there and I wasn't holding myself to two high of a goal and then next year I really want to focus on optimization but for me like the first 10 months was really around creating great experiences for people and um, kind of understanding what the market would bear before really because what you do to maximize um, utilization is you change pricing so that would be the next step. Mm -hmm. I do want to touch on your occupancy rate and and your ADR what what do you over we could say occupancy rate for peak season and then occupancy rate for low season. What, what does that look like? I'm still learning what those are. Um, summer picked up quite a bit and so did fall. In fact, October, I think we only had a handful of days open period. And November is actually turning out to be pretty full as well. But December is mostly just weekends and like very little is booked for January through March right now. I also think yeah. the thing I've learned is the booking curve. Um, we actually, this is a surprise, and I think it's because I've done a bad job on Airbnb and a good job with direct-to-consumer. 80% of our revenue comes in through direct-to-consumer, and we only have like 6,000 Instagram followers. So I think we have an awareness problem. We rank very terribly on Airbnb. I made the mistake, if you want to talk about lessons learned, I made the mistake of going on Airbnb a little too early because I was pre-planning, and then my property just sat there. And my understanding is that Airbnb gives you, like a, I learned this after the fact, like a 60-day grace period where they believe your product's new and they bump you up a little bit. But if you don't get a lot of bookings, then they assume something's wrong with your property and they put you to the very bottom. Well, I was so excited. As a direct-to-consumer marketer, I marked up Airbnb a lot higher than direct to, the direct-to-consumer channel. And so I didn't get a lot of bookings at the beginning. And so I'm still living in the world mm -hmm. of penal penalization from Airbnb. I've literally only had to date, nine bookings stay so far. So I'm just about to reach superhost status in like the next two weeks, which is kind on, of crazy on Airbnb. on Airbnb. Yeah. Which I mean, oh my goodness, that's pretty slow. That's really, really slow. Yeah. So um, I mean, for but, the for the quality of your property, I would imagine Airbnb crushes. But I love to hear the fact that you're 80 percent direct bookings. That is incredible. I think I push every single person to get their direct bookings channel up and running, start doing digital marketing, start pushing a property on socials because you cannot rely on third-party direct booking channels. It, it, I mean, Airbnb is getting so much flack. Talk a little bit, I, I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I wanted to hear, uh, let, let's first dive into the, the original question. So about 60, 70% occupancy, Right. I'd say think? closer to, to 40 or 50, right? Because 40, if 50. you've got if you've got weekends always booked and 
handfuls of pockets of weekdays, that's that's closer to 40 or 50%. Now, I mean, the good news is, is that we have a pretty low interest um, mortgage, right? And so our operating costs are not particularly high. And so I think that we could optimize more by adjusting pricing. Mm. But I've also been a little bit risk averse in playing with pricing too much because I don't know how much I drop pricing. What Is it a different guest that comes in? And does that result in sort of a, a lower... A different experience. Um, I'm afraid it's going to get wrecked, right? I think we actually might have over-invested a little bit in this place. I mean, there's a lot of custom walnut woodwork, <laughs> and there's a custom court and steel shower. And, and I guess kind of to your original question, I mean, this is emotional, right? This isn't just a business that we created to, like, pump out cash and, and not – like, I care about that place. It was a passion project for me, and so for now – I've been okay with maybe not like not dropping my prices during the weekdays and getting perfect utilization because I want to be particular about which guests are coming. And I have a little bit of blind faith that as I increase awareness, my utilization is going to go up and I just want to keep doing what I'm doing, which is creating awareness versus playing with the pricing lever. And I think there's different paths you can take. Um, I can tell you that some of our guests have already come back. Uh, within like a six month mm. period, which I think is a pretty good rebooking rate. Not everybody needs to go to a cabin, you know, twice a year when there's so many other options in terms of what you can do for a vacation. So I don't know. I'm just, I guess, making some emotional decisions on that part. I, that piece that you talked about lowering price and that attracting a different consumer segment for, uh, or, a, or a different demographic, I couldn't agree more with that. I I think that when you start dropping your prices, you start getting into, I might get flack for this comment actually, now that I'm thinking about it, saying it out loud. I think when you drop the price down, you get a consumer segment that is less appreciative of the actual experience that you're offering. And we have seen personally for our properties, when we drop it below $100 a night, we get the consumer that is actually a less appreciative consumer. And I don't like the word entitled, but that is almost kind of what we see that if we drop it under a hundred, if we drop, if we keep it in between that hundred to 250 mark, we, we find that we get the best uh, consumer and the best person traveling for uh, the, product that we have created. What is your current ADR? Real quick, and then I want to hear what your thoughts are on that. So we have a weekday rate and we have a weekend rate and we have a sort of premium event rate. So the weekday rate is roughly around $500, give or take, you know, 50 bucks. And then the weekend rate is between 850 to 950 a night, which is Friday and Saturday. And then there's you know, it's Christmas or it's Thanksgiving or it's mm-hmm. Mother's Day and that and that might be an extra 100 or 200 for a night. I have not, I've purposefully not engaged with the price labs. Um, I can, I actually used to work in pricing strategy for the airline. So like I'm pretty oh, um, familiar with how you can adjust pricing to adjust utilization. And I'm kind of purposefully not doing that because my, my profession is, brand marketing. And so I think there's different ways you can drum up demand. I think 
the, and I've worked in retail environments where once you get on the promotional train, it's really hard to get off of it because pe customers are smart and if they don't want to feel like they're paying full price for something that might be promotional at a different time. And so it's, in my opinion, better to be less promotional and just price. And I think things are very fairly priced. I mean, one of the calculations I did was that I wanted to ensure that the cost per head per night would be less than $100 a person. Mm. And if you've got 14 people and it's $850 a night, and yes, there's a cleaning fee and some taxes, but let's just round it up to $1,000 a night. And it's still well under $100 a person. And even if you have 10, right, it's at $100 a person. I feel like if you normalize the cost per head, you actually end up spending a lot more money when you stay in like a two bedroom with four people than you do in a larger environment. And so I think the sort of the barriers for booking are not even as much price for me as they are the fact that it's just kind of large and people have to get organized and coordinate. And also not everybody likes that many people to travel with, right? Like some people <laughs> might just want to get away as a couple. They may not all love their family. They may not always have bachelorette party events. I've actually seen a good amount of traction with sort of yoga retreats and um, sort of, I would call them girl getaways, whether it's like a 30th or a 40th or a 50th birthday or um, bachelorette parties. And um, I was a little nervous about bachelorette parties because I've been on bachelorette parties and I don't know if I'd want me at a bachelorette party on my property. <laughs> but these people have all been very Orly, respectful. Orly, do, you, uh, do you get crazy on bachelorette parties or what? I mean, I just might break something. It's a real, it's yeah. a real, it's a real reality hey, look, there. When the tequila comes out, watch out for the dining room tables. Yeah, no one's cutting you off in the woods. So, <laughs> um, but one thing I want to say though about price is I think the way I think about price is I really want my target guests to be homeowners because I think homeowners are more respectful of homes and as the price point might drop down it might attract a guest demographic that rents and they are the ones because they're not used to having to worry about cause and effect of how you engage with a place they're the ones that might be accidentally a little more less careful and so for me it's it's around respect to the place that comes with maybe just some price sensitivity or insensitivity it might be an inappropriate thing to say, but I've just, I've been lucky with getting really respectful guests and I want to kind of still be lucky enough to get respectful guests too. Yeah. I totally, I totally understand it and definitely agree with that. I, uh, I like the idea. I think it, everything goes back to the intentionality of how you built the property, right? You building the property for one, you and your family first, and then attracting the people that are most like you and your family. And I think that when you build it with that ideology first, you end up attracting the same demographic of who you built it for. And so building it for a nice big family like yours and then attracting the same uh, consumer segment, I think is right on the market. I, uh, I call them our dream team because I desperately, uh, I know for us, they are the lifeblood behind our organization. It's your cleaners, your handyman, your property managers. It's the people that the, that keep the property going. Tell me a little bit about who your dream team consists of. I'm gonna knock on wood so nothing changes. Um, I've got an amazing crew of cleaners. They go above and beyond. Um, I mean, I I made sure at the beginning. I think everything comes down to 
if you communicate well in both directions, you can have good working relationships. And I think setting people up for success is really important too. And so at the beginning, right, I spent a lot of time creating standard operating procedures, coming down and just being very open around, I think we should do it this way. Here's my why. I know I try to not be dictatorial and just say do X, Y, Z. I like to explain the why behind it so people feel like they're bought in because I think people need to know why um, to, you know, agree. I, so I, I've got, you know, several folks that come and clean consistently. They've never missed a day. They're even kind enough to let me know when something looks funky and I'll take care of it. I've got um, one individual who is available for maintenance related issues. I haven't had a ton of maintenance related issues because it's brand new, but I know they'll come. And then there's things I just didn't even understand, like the electric water heater just deciding to turn off at times, right? Things like that mm -hmm. that I had to work through. And then finally, I've got a handful of folks that are, um, Athens, Ohio is about 30 minutes away and there's a university there that are, that are kind of like college age boys that are willing to come and stack wood or clear trails and I'll do it with them because I like to know how to do things myself. Like I, I think it's super important to be hand in hand. And then even like when we stay as a family, I always try to make an effort like for the cleaners, like I'll throw in a couple loads of laundry to make their workload less. I just think it's really important to like be a team with everyone and like be willing to kind of roll up your sleeves and do things as well. So I've been really lucky to find people that are sticking with me. And I think a really important part is also like sticking with them too. Mm, I love that. Um, okay, so Dream Team, I wanna talk about booking channels. I know we touched a little bit about only having eight reservations on Airbnb. Are you thinking about uh, restarting the Airbnb account so that we, you redo the, the 60 day kind of check mark with Airbnb? I thought about it. Um, I only have a handful of bookings in 2024 through Airbnb, so I could, but I'm actually just about to get Superhost in like three weeks. So it might make a difference. Yeah. And if not, then I might restart it. That's, I gave myself until 2024 on that one because it's kind of a pain in the butt, but yeah. um, it would probably be worth it from a revenue perspective to do that if, if this Superhost status doesn't help me much. I'd That's love your amazing, advice but... if you have any advice there because I'm obviously not very good at Airbnb get like all of we 100% on Airbnb. We've tried doing the VRBO, but we have been fortunate enough to be pretty much fully occupied in all of our units just through Airbnb. We also have the Grand Canyon, which is 25 minutes away. So tourism is consistent. Yeah. So we're not having, we're basically capitalizing off of a place that already has tourism year round and we have the consumer. And so our, uh, it's interesting because you said talked about reoccurring booking and we don't have many reoccurring booking It's not like people are going to the Grand Canyon two or three times a year They go once every 10 or 15 years if right. they only go once and so all of our guests are new guests and All of our guests are we get tons of international travelers. We get tons of couples and We're majority on Airbnb But we ha we do it I think we play the game of Airbnb where I think that we sacrifice, like when we start, our prices are low and our, we book like seven, eight, 
10 reservations within the first two days of being on Airbnb because we start off with that 90%. We offer the discount that Airbnb offers for the first three guests. We play the game of Airbnb, mm -hmm. which then allows us to mm -hmm. rank up high on Airbnb. And it's tricky though, when you have a glamping unit, managing expectations is so different than having a stick-built home. And we're now in the process of doing stick-built homes where we're actually starting our first stick-built home in the next month. But having an Airstream that you have to turn off water in the winter because it gets to 10 degrees and it freezes and cracks and you can't insulate those pipes because it's a built Airstream already, you get into uh, managing expectations definitely is a lot tougher on our end. And so we see that that reflects negatively on Airbnb. So we've played the route of trying to switch and have just a winter account for our Airbnb and then just a summer account for our Airbnb. Uh, we've tried all of them, but I would suggest you have such a beautiful, beautiful property that I, I'm very surprised that you have only had eight bookings up to this date on Airbnb. I'm more, I'm less, I'm more impressed about your direct bookings than I am surprised about your Airbnb though. I want to really dive into your direct bookings and how you were able to get all of your direct bookings. Do you run ads? You have that background in marketing, <clears throat> which I can't tell you how important it is to have an understanding about marketing. Walk me through how you were able to get your direct bookings. Uh, first, I want to know about your channel, what you use, and then how you are able to get your customers. So I have a property management system, which I think it's just a must have for anyone that doesn't want to waste a lot of time. I am all about, I, I work in marketing, but there's a huge MarTech component to what I do in my day to day. Like anything you can automate, you should do it because time is money. And so um, I use Hostfully. I don't think there's a perfect system out there. I've actually been entertaining the idea of looking at other ones. I would love it if Hostfully, for example, had more sophisticated um, offer code capabilities. Like I, I've used Shopify, mm. for example, in like a work environment. And there's just a lot more things you can do um, to drum up sort of fast demand uh, with being more particular, like only wake, if it was, for example, only on weekdays, but it, they just give you a generic ability to use promotions for a period of time. So I set up the property management system and it's integrated into Verbo. I've only had a handful of bookings from Verbo. And actually, um, one thing I don't like about the integration is that with Verbo, there's a there's a 4% transaction fee each way. And so if someone cancels, you lose 8% on a booking that goes away, which is there's no way around it. I spend plenty of hours on the phone. So I've actually thought about um, shutting down my Verbo account, but I haven't had a lot of uh, a lot of traction there. But um, everything is centralized through the property management system. And the most important thing for me, to your point on managing expectations, is I set a lot of time into the automated messaging and triggering. So that's more once the booking happens, you know, ensuring that they know what to expect. I have a pretty robust guidebook. And I try to think about meeting the person where they are and when they need something. So for example, the morning of, they get a text with the address, right? Because that way you don't have to go dig in and via an email, but then you know seven days in advance, they get the address and a whole lot of other stuff. And by the way, when they book it, they get the address and a whole bunch of other stuff so that they can plan. But that's once things are booked. And your question was more on how did I drum up bookings? Um, I don't know 
what to say because it was a pretty minimal investment approach. I've only run like $50 in Instagram ads total. Everything has been being consistent through organic social media and partnering with a handful of influencers that I would say are sort of well known in the cabin space. So they have a audience that possibly is interested in cabins. So that would be, you know, Levi Kelly, Shelby Wilray, Faith Dunhoon. She goes by Pretty um, Little Traveler. I've only had a handful of those influencers though. So I, I, again, this is like super untapped. I mean, if I were to double down on this, I could probably get even more. But the website traffic that I'm getting is pretty decent. Um, the website is f somewhat optimized for search engine optimization. But even when I look at what um, what keyword terms are being used to find my cabin, it's very much the acres or mm. cabin in Ohio, right? Mm. It's it's not like we're. I mean, there's we are new and not super high ranking. I do think it helps though that I'm using Google reviews for my direct booking site because we've got a good number of Google reviews. They're all five stars. I help. I think that helps us rank higher on Google. Um, and so kind of leveraging just some best practices around search engine optimization, getting backlinking to my website from other websites, those things just help you be found um, on, on Google when people are searching. So I think the combination Explain what of backlinking is real quick. <clears throat> Yeah, so basically your website or anyone's website ranks higher on Google, the more things link to it. And so if you've got, and, and I don't totally understand the analysis that Google uses, but it has to do with quality of the link as well as quantity. So you could pay someone on Fiverr to go make a hundred, you know, low quality backlinks and it might help you with SEO. But if you have a couple of, well-established websites that are recognized by Google as, you know, real businesses that have been around for a while, if they link to your website, it actually helps you a ton in terms of mm. um, search ranking. What have you been able to do backlinking wise? Not a ton, honestly. I mean, there's so much opportunity that I haven't even gone after. There's a couple blogs that we've been um, linked on. I know that my architect links to us. I mean, some of the folks that we've worked with, we link to each other to just try to help each other. We have one gentleman um, who he did all the custom woodwork. I mean, the table, the the, the hearth and mantel, like the waterfall um, sink in one of the bathrooms, the live edge desk. I mean, there's a ton of custom woodwork. We Our websites link back to each other. And then the other thing I did that I think was pretty clever is we furnished a lot of our furniture from Bliss Home Market, which is a local furniture store. We were part of a giveaway that they did where we gave away two nights. They have a highly qualified audience for who our target demographic is because mm. it's primarily women who are buying furniture, which I think you can assume they might be homeowners or far enough in their life that they're investing in high quality furniture, even if they're renting that probably have families. And so I think it's so much about quality of placement of your brand in front of your target demographic audience than it is, you know, quantity. And in that instance, I think that one, um, that one giveaway that we did drummed up a good amount of business for us, as well as we did a giveaway with like a local, um, like 
media Instagram page. It has like 150,000 followers. So I think that got us some followings and some awareness. So I think there's a lot of untapped opportunity, but we've just been, I've just been experimenting with digital, um, digital collaborations. Back to the influencers that you've worked with, how were you able to reach out to them and work with them? Was it organic where they reached out to you? Did you reach out to them? How was that relationship curated? I reach out to almost everybody because we're still new on the block and I've got a pretty robust list of um, people that I've started following that I think create great content. And part of it is just like the, do I think they align with my brand in terms of their messaging? I don't have an interest in working with influencers that are like Amazon affiliates and seem to be, you know, putting something new up every day without any sort of soul behind it. For me, I'm looking to work with individuals that create on Instagram that seem to have a point of view that's authentic. Cause I think, you know, the cabin from my perspective was created very authentically. And so I think just being a little bit purposeful around who is the end follower of that creator and do they align to what I think some of the values are for my place, trying to find a match there is a big part of how you select. Um, I, you know, Instagram gives you a lot of information on who your target uh, followers are. They may not necessarily be your customers, right? Because I all of a sudden have a very large international following and they're not gonna probably come stay. But I still know that I primarily skew female, primarily millennial, and um, there's certain content that I can just tell does better. It's almost like a test and learn with people that are interested in your content, whether or not they're your customers, that gives you a sense of you know what stories resonate. I come from a digital marketing marketing background as well. And okay. I can tell you that my feeling of being able to market something that I actually own myself was life-changing for me. Walk me through the feeling and ability that you have in, was this the first product that you were able to kind of apply your skill set and previous skill set to? And walk me through kind of what that means to you, what that means to be able to use something that you have made a living off of for a product that you now own for yourself. I mean, it's just fun, right? Because it's up to me. I've never worked anywhere that I don't believe in what they do. That's always been a requirement for me. And if I didn't believe in what they did, then I didn't stay very long because I realized it over some time. So I think I've been fortunate enough to always apply my career to something I feel authentic about, but to take it beyond authentic and to actually have it be like passion driven, it's a whole other level. I also though find it's kind of hard to market something you're really close to. One of the values of a marketer is to come in with a fresh outside perspective. And I almost think I'm worse at it because I'm so <laughs> in it, I can't see it. Um, because one of the goals of marketing is to bring in the empathy of the outside user and make sure you're reaching them. And this is so me centric that I need to make sure I'm not doing me marketing, right? I need to make sure I'm understanding the end user, what their problem statements are, what resonates with them. So I actually think it's harder to do than if I were working somewhere that was just less personal, but it's more rewarding personally. How were you able to overcome 
that difficulty of it being so close to you, marketing something that is is basically an extension of you, and that difficulty of getting the consumer segment that's not that's not Orly Benjamin. Well, first, I make an effort with everyone that stays. I personally reach out so that they know I'm a like you know it's not just a machine sending them stuff, and I ask them if they need anything in advance and if they have any questions. And I use those questions as an insight to what is not clear, whether it's on my website or in my communication and a just continuous improvement on what's missing. And then I always reach out afterward and say like, we're new, we're still looking to improve. Is there anything that you think we could have done better? And is there anything that you particularly enjoyed? And I also use those as insights, right? For the objective of continuous improvement, but then also understanding what is our value proposition and, and what are things that people care about. And so I always use guests' insights as a validation, especially when you start to see trends around what people really cared about. I, I use those as my messaging tenants more than, like the outdoor shower I'm obsessed with. I don't know if anybody else cares, honestly. <laughs> like I just keep pushing that on Instagram and I don't know if anyone's into it, but people really love the outdoor covered fireplace. So um, I'm looking at, I'm listening to others so that I don't have to rely on myself to understand what works. That's amazing. So what would you have done differently that you did this time around? And then are you planning on doing that thing differently in the future uh, as you expand? Mm -hmm. Or are you saying, okay, the acres are done, we're never doing this again. We have 78 acres. I mean, there's a lot of runway for growth. I want to continue to grow, but I also want to self-fund it. And so there are limitations with that. I Part of this whole project is around not reporting to anyone else, right? I've spent my whole life reporting to someone else. And if you have an investor, to an extent, you are reporting to them. And so I know that we're moving slower. We're probably to an extent leaving some money on the table by not moving as fast, but I'm okay with that because I still feel like we're reaching our goals. And it's not, this is not just a business to pump cash out of for me. It's a personal endeavor that also is profitable and I'm okay living in a middle ground there, but I have a lot of crazy ideas. I think the I don't regret doing it, but it was a learning, as I think we almost created our flagship space by, by oversizing it. And it wasn't the highest optimized footprint with having that many bedrooms. And so my next set of structures would be a little more accessible to people without having to bundle up with others. So I'm thinking something that sleeps two to four is probably ideal. Um, Again, not a regret, but it's like a lesson learned in terms of, you know, where, I mean, people, I get a lot of people reaching out for four to six people and it's just not economical to have that much extra space unless you don't mind spending extra. So I think, I think the, the product market fit is in a smaller profile unit and I probably could have invested less in design centric things. Cause I don't know how much anyone cares that there's a solid black walnut hearth and mantle, which are not cheap. And I probably could have done that a little cheaper and then taken some of that cash and I don't know, added a pickleball court or something, you know? So I think <laughs> thinking about what do people really want to do and how do I allocate 
dollars based off of experiences versus design is probably another lesson. I was just really into the idea of creating something beautiful. And I think people appreciate it whether or not they realize it, but I don't know if it registers so much more that it's a super high quality local material versus it's just a wood fireplace, you know? Absolutely. I think there was two really beautiful nuggets in there. One being fulfilling a niche of the smaller couple getaway, I think is, is a, is a beautiful niche to fulfill as we get both. We get the, the six people, friends coming in, seeing the Grand Canyon, and then we get the husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, girlfriend, girlfriend, partner situation that comes in as well. And so I think that there is definitely a solving both needs is very important. I do think it's interesting that you fulfilled the group setting and then are now retroactively wanting to go there, where I think a lot of people do the opposite and they start with, okay, I'm going to do the couples retreat, build the equity and the money in order to then do the bigger one and have the larger ADR. Um, I think, I think both options are really sound. It's just the, it's the way that you want to do. I don't, and this is take this with a grain of salt. I think that fulfilling the problem for you and your family first is a beautiful way of doing it. And I think that you said, I have a big family. I want a cabin for me and my family. We can make money off it, but I'm fulfilling that problem first. I'm fulfilling the need of me and my family first. And then we're going to then take a look at all of the reviews, everything that the guests needed and wanted, and then design something more for the guests and more for the experience is, is a beautiful touch that I think uh, that you did and I, I, I actually really agree with. I also love the aspect of you were talking about focusing more on the experience rather than the design or the architecture. And I think that that is, there's a give and take there, right? Because you do so well because of your design, but you also see little bits and pieces where you're like, oh, I could have done a little bit cheaper of a design or a, a piece there and then added more of an experience, which would have helped the guests. Uh, and so I do think that there is a, a give and take there uh, that definitely when starting hosts need to think about. Go more expensive on your accent pieces, go more expensive on the th on the design points that are crucial and important to you, but maybe go cheaper on some aspects on it so that you can reinvest that money on the experience part. I call it the experiential podcast because I, I, I think that's really what we're, we're, we're offering at the end of the day. We're offering an experience. We're offering, it's not a hotel. It's not a place to just sleep. It's an uh, opportunity to create these lifelong memories with your loved ones. It's, uh, but talk to me a little bit more about the experiences that you offer, what you've seen that your guests really, really love about the experience that you do offer, and uh, a little bit more about the experience. I think people really appreciate a couple aspects that were intentional. The biggest ones are that outdoor covered fireplace because you get to be outside and experience a wood burning fireplace but it feels like you're in a living room, right? Because it's it's got a roof over it, it's got, you know, a great outdoor couch. There's 
seating for many. So I think that one's super important for people. And it's if I were to look through my Google reviews, that's one of the things that's always appreciated because it's unexpected and it's it's a bonus. And I also think they appreciate sort of the the usability design because it's right next to the kitchen. There's a sliding window. You can pass snacks and drinks in and out. It's just another outdoor living space right next to the kitchen. People also really appreciate that there's not a bad bedroom. Nobody wants to go somewhere with a group of people and feel like they got like the kid room or the one, you know, with the smallest bathroom. So, so I view there as being different points of differentiation for each room. One of the rooms is, um, like all the rooms at the top floor have bigger windows, but they're smaller bedrooms. And the rooms in the bottom floor are bigger and they have like an over the top bathroom with a soaking tub. I call it the party bathroom because it like you could literally hang out with like 10 people in there. It's so big and excessive. <laughs> Another area I probably overinvested. Um, but I think there's sort of, what do you want? Do you want to be near everybody? And be, are you going to stay up a little bit later and want to be in the mix? Or do you want to be downstairs where it's more quiet and have like a little more space for yourself? So there's not, there's not like a wrong answer. It's what do you prefer? Um, and I think people really appreciate when they're traveling with a group of people to not feel like there's an unequal experience. I also think the kitchen being very well stocked is something people, there's not a lot of great restaurants in Hawking Hills. There just aren't. And so when you're going out, with a group of people, there's a lot of people that need to eat. And so having a pleasant experience around cooking and like there's a main fridge and there's too many fridges for beverages. There's like lots of room. So you don't feel like you're running out of anything. Um, I just think that's also very appreciated. And then people also really enjoy the fact that the hot tub is sunk in infinity style. And it's got like a uh, sort of a 180 degree view of the woods. Like it's at the edge of the deck. So I think people really love that they're kind of suspended at the deck at a height that's tree height, but that it's like this elegant hot tub experience that you kind of just pop into. It's a little more like a pool in that way. We end every episode with a story and it's okay if you don't have one, but we end every episode with the why. And <clears throat> is there a, a story that you resonate with of understanding the experience that you're offering, understanding why the true ability to disconnect and reconnect a story that one of your guests have that kind of you were like yes that's it that's that's exactly why i'm doing what we're doing is there a story that you have like that i don't i mean i honestly think it's my story right i'm a hyper connected human i there's a screen on each side of this right now you can't see it and then there's a phone like i'm constantly being bombarded because that's how my work is. And so leaving that environment, going in nature, which is like, I mean, forest bathing, there's a Scandinavian word for it. I just can't pronounce it, but there is like a ancient and well understood mental wellness to component to being in nature that like we've all out engineered ourselves from. That is a huge part of it, which is I want to, like you're saying, disconnect to reconnect. Like it's good to recharge yourself. That's one element. And then the second is to do it with others that you love because I'm an extrovert and socializing is energizing for me. And so the simplicity of leveling out in nature and doing it with people that you want to like slow down and hang out with, it's just that simple. My mission statement is to create like a special place for people to connect with nature and each other. It's just that simple. 
And so that's what this whole place is built around. I mean, yes, it's pretty, yes, it's private, but at the end of the day, it's a space designed for connection. And that's what the entire interior design is about. It's connection with nature and connection with each other. That's beautiful. I could not have said that any better. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. Where can people find you? You can find us on our website at um, www.theacrescabins. There's an S at the end of acre and an S at the end of cabins.com. And our Instagram handle is the same, which is the acres cabins. We're embarrassingly on TikTok, so don't judge us because it's pretty bad content. And, um, <laughs> you know, you can find, look at the it. look at the website and Instagram. They're a little bit better representations. I love it. Well, again, thank you so much for being on. And I wish nothing but success and prosperity for you guys in the future. Thank you, Lex. This was really fun. I appreciate it.